0: Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations.
1: We, we know of new methods of attack. The horse. The
0: fifth column. 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 Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault and news cycle for people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I am... Did we stop the story? We stopped it. It's okay, over. good. Uh, I'm delighted to be here then. Really happy, excited, thrilled. I do various things at Freethink. Um, and joined by some, some pretty great company today. Michael Moynihan is here as well. Um, and Matt Welch is here. <laughs> that sounds so excited. Uh, one of them is at Vice and the other is at Reason. One of them is the editor at large. The other, I mean, seriously, who knows? <laughs> um, and gentlemen, hope you're doing well. You're feeling well. Is it good? Yeah, good Wednesday afternoon. To I'm you a little bit bummed that you interrupted
2: in our striper conversation. Yeah,
1: because I thought we had the guys from Whoa. Striper on tonight. Yeah, <laughs> that was it's a big no, disappointment. We don't, we don't have the guys. From the yellow and from striper on yellow on and black attack just thrown out. by
0: We have, Bibles. We have le- legend uh Matt Taibbi. <laughs> yeah, it's a hell with the devil. Uh, t- Taibbe. Matt Taibi. Is it Taibi or? Yeah. It's Taibi. Well, it's Matt Taibi. Taibi, Taibi, Taibi. You told me it was Taibi before. I said it right. You, well, it sounds.
3: Bad. You know, sounds I think that
1: exotic. Matt. I think you and I went to high school in the same town.
3: Did we what? really? Where? Did you go to
1: high school in Concord, Massachusetts?
3: I did. I went to okay. the, I went to the Shishi Private School there. Yeah, we,
1: I went to the public school where we all CCHS? had like accents and like three. Yeah, we were like, yeah, fuck those guys, Matt Taibbi, guys a fucking loser. Did, yeah, did, did Taibbi's
2: Ponce uh, school? Did anyone like play hockey or do normal guy stuff? No, they were all in
1: rickshaws being pulled around <laughs> the town. Um, fancy lads that they were. Yeah, yeah. No, wow. we, I don't think uh, Concord wow. County didn't have a didn't have a hockey team i don't think did they we didn't have Shouted a hockey
3: team a no concord academy is an ex girl school so it's yes it was uh, it, it's Excellent. also tiny so it was yeah uh, yeah it did not have a hockey team let's put it that way it did it had yeah, a basketball we, team yeah. but it was it was about as bad as, as it could possibly we were,
1: be we were we were ringed in the public school by middlesex uh fen uh and, oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah and um and we had all sorts of pejorative names, which these days you would not be allowed to say about, uh, the people from those schools. So nice to see you. Just <laughs> wanted to, I'll tell, I'll tell you about them after well, Tybee. You don't remember well, he's, this. He's come
0: along. He's come a long way since, since school. He, he's, uh, still contributing editor at Rolling Stone, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. uh, co-host of a podcast, yes. a very, very famous podcast, if I'm not mistaken. A useful Idiots mm-hmm. podcast. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's right? a Y'all good podcast. podcast. Yeah. 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 It's watched by many people. Mm-hmm. Um, And also, also amongst the Vanguard mm. at Substack in terms of contributors there. I mean, Matt, I think you are kind of the one who like set this whole damn thing off like this this weird thing where people just started abandoning their jobs and going to Substack mm-hmm. and becoming Substack billionaires. <laughs> like you were the first Substack billionaire journalist. Yeah, uh, what have you been doing with all of your your wealth and
3: power? Well, I actually don't have it yet cuz my my contract with, it's a long story. I, I it, 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 does, it doesn't <laughs> We're listening again for another couple of weeks but um but yeah, I was one of the first Substack or audience the word they that yeah, used yeah. to all of us. So, Wait, like, so you've been
1: substacking huh. Zora, for Zora free?
0: Zora, Neale, Zora Neale Hurston used to refer to herself as part of the nigger ride. Oh, I'm God. Sure <laughs> How
1: <laughs> long did that take you, that Camille? About two minutes to drop that and make us all uncomfortable? <laughs> um, I just...
0: I, I built up to it. You knew what was coming. I, I, did,
1: I did not know what was coming. <laughs> yeah,
0: no
3: one, no yeah, one knew. We'll remember this one because it's going to be the last of our careers. not, <laughs> yeah, <fun>. nah, <laughs> not for me. Not for you. I yeah. can't be touched. Wait, so I Matt, you be touched haven't touched been being, being I You haven't been
1: paid yet. you, you not no, no, paid. It's just okay. Uh, you know the the
3: the, 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 the Substack. You can arrange your your payment in a couple of different ways, and I stupidly chose to get a little bit of guaranteed money as opposed to the. The, um... Wait,
1: so it's like winning the lottery where you can get it all in one lump or you can get it like you know, for the rest <laughs> of your life?
3: I was afraid that it wasn't going to work. So, yeah. I, oh. I, I, I took a deal that, uh, at the beginning oh. that was a little bit less generous. And then I advised everybody who came after me not to do that. So they're all getting they're yeah. all getting the money. and uh, yeah. no, Oh, man. Me, and, kicking, yeah. and
0: kicking. Are they kicking a little back to you? No, and they should, though. No, I wouldn't. Uh, See, Matt, this is the reason why you need to <laughs> develop some affection for capitalism. <laughs> I can help you with yeah. this. Um, uh, You could have been brokering some deals, taking some points. Greenwall should be kicking some points he, back. He Ma- sure. I'm just saying. He how, he how, how much was. A couple
3: of points, definitely. Yeah.
0: How much was GameStop when you bought it, Matt? Four
1: <laughs> hundred. <Yeah. laughs> Jesus, four
3: hundred and eleven. Like, that's the, that's the sweet spot, right? <laughs> yeah, there. yeah, exactly, exactly. No, it's, it's funny. Oh, I, know I, was, I was one of the first people to get in, and uh, but I was I was one of the few people who didn't go because they were forced out of their existing situation. <laughs> um that's I true. actually kind of just chose it because I thought it was a a cool idea, uh, <laughs> but it, it, it turned into a thing over the summer where suddenly everybody was making this decision. And it's, uh, it's, it's been, it's been amazing. It's been fascinating to watch how people respond to it because the, you know, the audience size is like way bigger than I thought it was ever going to be. So it's, but it,
0: can I ask, can I ask a question about mm-hmm? this? Because I am someone who subscribes to maybe 11 different stacks <laughs> and I'm paying for all of
3: them. Yeah. Right.
0: And look, I, I'll acknowledge Show that records. I'm a guy who doesn't like to fly code right. and I can afford to pay for a couple substacks, sub stacks, even when I'm not reading. Sure. Um, but that's a lot. That adds up. Quickly. It does. I mean, how do you think this model changes? What do you think this means for the industry at large? Cause I can't imagine that this happens for most people.
3: I don't think it's going to change a lot in terms of structurally for the industry. It's certainly not a, a long-term solution for something like, you know, building teams of investigative reporters or having, Mm -hmm. um, you know, offices in Moscow and Jakarta for, you know, (laughs) for foreign reporting like that. This is not a solution for that. It's a solution for a couple of high profile names, uh, to support themselves. And, you know, I think a lot of the names that, that jumped to Substack, they were capitalizing on this backlash against traditional media that's going on now where people are, um, they're bailing on their subscriptions to traditional uh, outlets like the New York Times, although the Times is actually doing well with subscriptions. But uh, I, I, I hear from the people who are subscribing to me that, you know, I, I, I want to give you my money because I'm so pissed off at what's going on in the media elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know how long that phenomenon is going to last, but it's interesting for sure.
1: But So you made that decision, not like I mean, pretty much everybody else we've had on the
2: show. We've had almost everybody. Like a half a dozen of people.
1: Yeah, who have been yeah. sort of bounced from their places of employment because of some political thing. But you're at Rolling Stone. You're still at Rolling Stone. So, I mean, were you writing for Rolling Stone too? And you just they said, well, let's just try this out as an extra source of income? Or were, were you just exclusively doing the podcast there? What was the, the motivating factor?
3: So I, I had actually been there at Substack for, I was one of the first people at Substack. I, I uh, was there for two years. Um, I exercised a little loophole in my contract that allowed me to do books. So I serialized a book on Substack. Oh, wow. I did I did the book Hate Inc. Um, I didn't realize. Yeah, and I also wrote a book. Um, I, I co-wrote a book with a drug dealer called The Business Secrets of Drug Dealing. Um, oh. <laughs> and I had a little bit of a subscriber base, made, made some money doing that. Uh, and but then, you know, as I was <clears throat> working there, I started to have some thoughts about kind of the future of media and where it's going. And I was tuned into what was going on at other ma- major media organizations. And I thought, it, you know, this this is the way it's going to end up being, you know, where the the, the the money is just not there to support um, high profile investigative journalism and big personalities at big organizations anymore unless you cut out all the middlemen um hmm. you know you cut out the owners you cut out the advertisers and you get paid directly from uh the the audience so I, I i had that thought um about a year ago and uh and that's why i made the move um it was a bit of a gamble but i think it turned it turned out to be a good one i think
2: and so. you t- seem to be a person who is not about burning all the bridges behind you which is uh, rare for a lot of our sub stacking friends. <laughs> will you just say that you're
1: talking about Glenn? <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's his own special thing.
2: Um, and we <laughs> talked about that at great length uh, on this podcast. Uh, but, um, w- was there anything at, at the place that you're still a contributing editor at that made you feel a sense of the, the, the oxygen is constricting a little bit. You're, you're sort of hedging a pitch or hedging what you might think about writing about was your own workplace contributing to that
3: yeah first i mean i should say i've always had a great relationship at rolling stone they've given me a ton of freedom over the years historically you know uh, i was there for a long time they let me do a lot of stuff that i knew they didn't agree with the editors you know there there was a time there when i was being very critical of the obama administration i know they didn't love that but yeah no recently for sure um I, i think i started to see the writing on the wall a little bit that um, you know, I, I, that there's a thing that's going on uh, in media where basically you're either on one team or the other, mm-hmm. and uh, I I have never been into that model of media. If you if you go back and look, I've always made a point of trying to look in all directions and criticize uh, both parties, and 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 also to focus on issues where the 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 problems are probably bipartisan in nature. So, you know, like banking or military contracting corruption, stuff like that, where it's not one party's Mm -hmm. fault or the other. Um, But that kind of stuff is like not popular these days. Um, What's Mm -hmm. really wanted from you is they want you to hit one team or the other. And, um, you know, that's not my sweet spot. I just don't do well at that. And so I I figured this would be an easier uh, fit for me.
0: It is interesting to think about how the industry's changed, what like drives readership at newspapers and what pays the bills and how all those incentives line up. I think last week when we were talking to Martin Gurry, we talked for a little bit about how, you know, it was the classifieds before mm-hmm. you get the newspaper. And it's actually the ads in the back that people are paying for that are paying for the damn thing. Um, And they tried to make it all about, you know, impressions online and advertising and that didn't really work out so well. At the moment, it's subscriptions and what's driving subscriptions is opinions. And the opinion section, what drives that is vitriol yeah. and contempt for the other people. And it's not the newsrooms, which is weird. So if you you imagine that if you if your opinion is driving the revenue and that is the same person who might be able to go off to Substack and like make a mint or do something else on their own some independent brand Exactly how it works out for the really expensive investigative journalism stuff, which, you know, they may work for months, maybe even a year on some important feature that it may go all Panama papers on you, which is to say that a lot of people know about it and very few people actually read it, Right. which, you know, how do you, how do you do that? Well, it'll be interesting to see how things really shake out because I think there's obviously a prestige play there, but funding a capable, especially like a global newsroom, very few people can actually do that institutionally now anyways um and i can't imagine anyone (laughs) being able to do that by like a substack, crown fund subscription only effort anyhow
3: no it's 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 not going to work that way but it's interesting that you mean martin uh, martin gurry and i i I think it's when i when i read his book recently um and and i also read an article that he, he recently wrote uh, about the subject, it re- really uh, coincides with a lot of the stuff that I wrote in, in Um uh, about mm-hmm. the changes in the business. He's exactly right. Um, we, The business used to be based heavily on uh, really an, an almost risk-free, guaranteed source of income and classifieds. Um, or if you were in broadcast, you had Uh, you know, they were, they were scarcity businesses basically, right? If you had a, if you had a license to do a radio station in some market like Philadelphia or Boston, there was only so, there were only so many ads, you were going to make a fortune basically no matter what, um, that's all gone now in the internet age. So they have to, they had to come up with a new way to make money. And what he points out, I think is the same observation that a lot of us in the business made, which is, um, the, the, the companies realize that we have to just sort of identify our audience and keep it. And how do we Mm -hmm. keep it? We build solidarity with them by feeding them a lot of bad news about some group they don't like. Uh, Mm -hmm. and we just do that over and over and over again. And I think Fox was the first company that did that really well. Um, you know, I don't mean well and like morally. I mean, they, they did it when they did it well. Like, uh, you know, they executed the plan. We know what you mean. <laughs> uh, but, you know, look at MSNBC does the same thing now. It's, it's it, everybody's basically doing that formula and it's it's completely an anathema to what you would think of as journalism. Because when you if you're going to do an investigative report, first of all, you never know how it's going to turn out when you when you start. You never know who's going to turn out to be guilty. You never know how big or little the story is going to end up being. Um, and you may end up delivering, um, you know, a, a, a conclusion that is not going to make that audience terribly happy. So it's it's not a good profit model for those companies anymore to, to do investigative work. Uh, it's much safer to do just opinion journalism and then just do like a patina of other stuff that makes it seem like you're doing report so it's one uh,
2: depressing. a differentiation that might be worth thinking about uh Camille um to what you were dis- uh, discussing is not necessarily that the New York Times is publishing a you know an eighty page opinion page it 's that the news that they're producing fits into that opinion mold um, which is a, it's it's this weird thing uh, matt uh sadly for him but also in in a in a way that 's been been beneficial too. Has always been compared to Hunter S. Thompson because Rolling Stone and a certain style of writing. I'm sure you've been sick of this for 20 years. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, as someone who, you know, when I was 18, I was trying to write like Hunter Thompson and embarrass myself a lot. Um, that but we also, all did, yeah. mm-hmm. we all did. I mean, like, it's the, it's a right of passage. It's, mm-hmm. and Hunter Thompson was embarrassing himself by trying to write like Ernest Hemingway. Um, and, and but, then, and well,
3: then later he embarrassed himself by trying to write like Hunter Thompson when he was, older. <laughs> yeah, yes. which was the worst. With the
2: ESPN called? Page two. Yeah. yeah. Uh, God. Those Tough one. Hey, Rube. I would have um, shot
1: myself, too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Anyways, but like uh, I know you know enough about the new journalism in the 60s and the 70s and stuff and took nutrients from it as, as, uh, as I did as well. And what's interesting about all of that is precisely what you say about the not knowing what it's going to be like in advance. And one of the great things about Thompson in his prime is that he would sort of like he would walk you through what he was doing. Um and in in like writing the story in a meta way while he was reporting it too and he would give you the thrill of discovery along with him. Um, again, this is in the in the, kind of the peak period, and you didn't know how it was going to end out. Um, and it's it's interesting because you know the there's this sense in which the New York is of the world are becoming more like the Guardian. They're becoming more predictable in the slant of how their news pages are going to be. And so on one level, you say, Hey, that's fine. That's great. People are just sort of wearing it on their sleeve. But on the other, it's that you know the answer in advance. Um, and you didn't know the answer in advance with that first generation of reporters who was saying, Hey, look, objectivity is, is kind of a dead letter. We should wear our own biases on our sleeve, but also be truth focused at the same time. And this, it feels like that is a sense that's lost, but maybe that is, exactly where the audience is in Planet Substack.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you're, I think you're right about... I mean, Tom, Thompson's method was great in that score because he basically viewed himself as a human hand grenade, you know? So he would, he would enter a scene and, you know, his behavior was so erratic <sighs> that whatever he was entering, he would destroy, you know? If, it, <laughs> if he was covering the, the Watergate hearings, you know, and he would... You know, he'd be urinating under the table into a bottle or something like that, and and what he was recording was the reaction of all the people around him, and and it was it was often surprising. You know, like he would go into a scene expecting that the people from he was going to love all the people in the McGovern campaign and hate all the people who worked for. Um, you know, for musky or whatever it was, but it wouldn't always turn out exactly that way. Like, you know, and, you the surprise of, of the, uh, of the situation was what made those, those accounts really, really exciting and really interesting. And he was very honest with himself, right? Like he, he would also sort of ruthlessly examine his own prejudices. Like, you know, I, I, I expected this, it turned out to be that. And, you know, that, that was interesting. Um, but no, we don't, the audiences don't like that anymore. They don't want to be surprised. They want, they want to know exactly what they're going to get when they tune in. And I think that's really, you know, you see that, uh, with Fox, but you also see it with like the MSNBC crowd where, you know, they're, they're tuning in and really what they're getting when they're tuning in is a whole bunch of messaging about what the, what, you know, the audience's moral and political superiority, right? Like, we're gonna let's show you a whole bunch of pictures of QAnon people who are just a lot stupider than you, uh, and <laughs> you know, you know, they don't have the capacity to to make smart political decisions the way you do, and they don't have the culture or, or you know the expertise. and And then on Fox, you know, what they're showing you is people who don't have respect for. Um, the country don't have a work ethic or whatever it is. Like, you know, it's, it's or always are,
2: a, who are members of the media like, like or, they, right. that is the enemy mm-hmm. class.
3: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's always aimed at flattering the audience, you know, like on, on, on yeah. the subtext is not even that far below the surface usually, yeah. which is not, I don't think really what journalism is supposed to be about.
1: I mean it's kind of well, hard I mean, I think, these days to actually have and I know that I think it's probably the most irritating thing if anyone ever compared me for 25 years to Hunter Thompson just because I have a personality and I work at Rolling Stone but it's it is the thing <laughs> is like there are so few journalists I don't even know if people don't want that stuff anymore because are so few journalists that actually have personalities and the way the media is structured and you see what's happening with all of these people and I don't even necessarily mean the the kind of menace of you know silly wokeness kind of stuff that like for lack of a better word um, it's just like they're really I mean conformity is exactly what I don't see anybody at the New York Times who has like any sort of personality at all I, I mean or in journalism in general it's a bunch of people who have degrees in puppet theater from Oberlin and guess what they're fucking boring they were boring then and they're boring now they're not even it's not even like the, you know the punk rock kids you know the riot girl kind of stuff it's all just so humorless and you know the thing about it is that you know the QAnon stuff's Good example is I did some, you know, just coincidentally did some QAnon stuff when I was doing this this documentary for, for the election. And I was really fascinated by these people and I ended up talking to them and, you know, having a good time. And the crew always comes out of this the same way because I don't go in there throwing punches. It doesn't matter if they're, you know, Antifa people or whatever. It's just, you know, you go and have a conversation with them. And the crew always comes out and be like, Oh, that was actually really interesting. That was, it was actually kind of like nice, nice people. And like Hunter Thompson didn't go into the, Hells angels and say, you know, you guys are moral reprobates, and I'm going to wag my finger at you for for you know 600 pages. It's he actually just engaged with them, and it's so rare. Into Matt's point of that, what you know, MSNBC. Exist to do, which is to be that moral scold and say, look at how dumb these people are. And you know, look, I'm sorry. I think they're pretty ridiculous when, when I, when I talk to them, but th- it's far more interesting to try to figure out why they got there. The only thing that the media seems to be interested in media means a lot of things interested in now when it comes to QAnon are people who, you know, got fooled and have now come forward. Which I don't really trust a lot of these people, by the way. And they come forward and they say, oh, I thought, uh, you know, the big spaceship was going to land on January 6th and it didn't happen. And that's kind of like, you know, don't you feel like an asshole now? And they're like, yeah, I really, I really do. And it's like, <laughs> I, I don't – yeah, yeah. that's essentially the question. It's like there is actually something more interesting here and you can talk to these people – as if they are humans without telegraphing to people that you agree with them because you clearly don't. And I clearly don't, but I just think there's such a, you know, with this, and I, and I think social media and all this stuff is a part of it in this sort of atomization of the media. People really want to go in there and make sure the throat clearing. And, you know, I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. Every time we talk, say anything even sort of remotely nice about Donald Trump, it's always, always a preamble about how much of a fucking asshole he is on the on show. Me, especially. It's like, there's a certain point where I'm just like, okay, I got to stop doing that. I have to because I'm contributing to this thing that you always are having to sort of lay your cards on the table and say, I know what's right and I know what's wrong, but I'm going to actually talk to this person like a human.
2: I watched uh, John King on CNN for 15 seconds today while I was like (laughs) chopping up mushrooms in the kitchen. And uh, he says, we're going to get to the Republicans uh, conspiracy uh, problems in a second. But first, we're going to talk about their problems with the truth. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's like literally a that, yeah, that's transcript
1: and we de- definitely didn't have four years of insane conspiracy theories on both of those major channels
2: i do want to ask you about this uh, max i see you talk about this um i don't know if it's on your twitter feed or in your sub stack which i am a subscriber and i read camille it's worth reading um, uh, which is uh, there's a sense, at least from you, also from Glenn Greenwald. I'll just tie you together for the moment, which is not fair, but whatever. Same person, uh, same person. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what happened to Glenn? That yeah, the <laughs> what happened to him? Glenn's getting yelled at today yeah. because of some uh, stupid uh, uh, thing. Anyways, uh, but that uh, that there's a de facto like uh, freeze out of certain voices that I presume will include your own, certainly Glenn at MSNBC because oh. you transgress these things. Can you flesh that out into specifics or close to it?
3: Yeah. W- w- so a bunch of us who, who were sort of skeptics on the Russia story, um, hmm. we started talking, I, I think it was in 2017, we realized that I, I was the last person invited on uh, any <laughs> network, um, you know, that was like a non-conservative network, Uh, Any of all the people who had even mild skepticism about the Russiagate story, uh, I was the last person who was invited on. And when I I was on the Chris Hayes show at the very end of 2016, and all I said on the show was it's not clear yet whether we're dealing with, um, you know, an active conspiracy between Trump and the Russians or some kind of a situation where maybe they interfered and he just sort of passively – Accepted help, or you know, it, there's just not a whole lot for us to go on yet, and that was it. So none of us, got, none wow. of us, got invited back uh, ever again uh, after that. And you should
0: have said something about the power plants. <laughs> Come on,
3: Read
0: the, the Vermont
3: power plants. Yeah, right, right, exactly. yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'll be right Nance.
1: back. I'm going to have coffee with Malcolm Nance. Oh my god,
3: that was on, I was on with Nance. That, that he, he, he? I bet you. Yeah, he's that, that, that was the show I was on with him. You could write a book
1: about what that means about the media, that somebody like Malcolm Nance, he's not the only one. Uh, Well, John Brennan, yeah. Well, at least John Brennan Mm -hmm. was the, was like the head of the CIA. Right. And you're like, okay, he has it actually. Like Malcolm Nance, I don't know what, I think he was working at Geico or something before he just (laughs) like all of a sudden shows up with like patches on. He's like, I was in the military. He's like, okay, that's fine. That's interesting. And then he just spouts all this insane stuff. And I just like, I don't, you know, I don't dislike everybody on that channel. I mean, I, I only turn it on when I'm on the road, by the way. It's he's, like when I'm in a hotel. He's
3: creative, though. I got to give him that. I mean, like, he thinks on his feet, which is... He, I mean, he, he thinks badly <laughs> on his feet, but it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's good. Yeah. But they're feet,
1: and he's thinking. Yeah.
3: So. <laughs> but did you ever, like, talk to
2: producers or even talk to Chris about this? Not to betray relationships or whatever, but, like, you said these kind of things publicly. Is anyone... Back channeled you and said either, like, Tell dude, sorry, secrets. or, or, like, uh, you're wrong, you know, you're making decisions or, right. or you're right, or,
1: yeah. like,
3: what's I the thing? I day? had a couple of discussions with a couple of producers who I had good relationships with, and they didn't, like, say there was a conversation about it, but there, it was more, there was, like, a vague tone of apology, let's put it that way. Um, yeah. but, but that, mm-hmm. but, but that didn't happen until after the Mueller report uh, and, and Mueller's testimony kind of fell apart. And um, look, I mean, those channels became a certain kind of way after 2016. I I think there was a radical change in the business when Trump got elected. And, you know, if you were not perceived to be the kind of person who's going to get up there and bark all day day long about how awful Trump was. And that was, you know, I, I wrote a lot of negative things about Trump, but I you know, it's it's like you were you were saying before. I, I what I found more interesting about Trump was why were people voting for this guy? Like, let's let's get into that question of, you know, what's going through the heads of the people who are who are making this decision. And I and I found pretty early on that people just did not want to talk about that on TV. Um, uh-uh. Uh-uh. And and that that I, I that was really a strange thing about the whole Trump era. Uh, after he got elected was this this total lack of interest in in the why question
2: um,
1: yeah and it remains too well, because you know the one thing that i one data point that was interesting and and kind of we saw it the very night of the election was how, cause you know, the, the original idea was seven, we didn't really realize how bad of our a racism problem that we had. 70 million people are racist and voted for Donald Trump. And it's like, yeah, you know, I think there's a little, something a little more complicated here. And then we saw Star County, which nobody has talked about since, which I think I find totally fascinating. And I imagine listeners and maybe have heard us talk about it or me talk about this in the past, but it is the most Hispanic county in America. It's on the border of Texas. Um, I guess the closest city would be M- M- was it be McClellan? Is that a McCallum. That's a- McCallum. And, uh, in Monterey, Mexico is probably like an hour and a half, two hours away. Um, and, you know, went for, what was it? Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama, something that was like, you know, 90 10 or something. And, you know, Joe Biden won the county too. But he won the county by like eight points. And it's like, wait, what is going on there? The most Hispanic county in America narrowed that gap after four years of Trump. That's kind of interesting. Maybe go down there and try to figure it out. But, you know, what it ended up being was this celebratory thing. Like, we're rid of him. It's like, yeah, but we're not rid of the people who support him. So you might want to try to figure that out. And I was really fascinated that nobody did take on that story and and go down there and and figure out why uh, people, you know, and, and especially because it's not it's not Miami. Because Miami you can dismiss as Cubans or Venezuelans or Nicaraguans, all sort of refugees of of kind of authoritarian regimes of the left. And the the play there, is, of course, was. Was, uh, oh, you know, Biden's a socialist or something. Total hogwash. But, you know, it's enough to work. Why? I'm not going to take any chances. I'll, I'll vote for Trump. But, you know, the people in, in Star County are not Cuba. I just, I don't know. It's, it's fascinating how, how little people are interested in, in, um, looking into that stuff. What's
2: it, What's your analysis?
0: Well, at least oh, two other things that I would like to, to try to do just to, to try to give some shape to our conversation here. Like, I want to talk, uh, Matt, a little bit about the piece that you wrote recently about, Fox news mm-hmm. and folks trying to get them canceled or at least not get them canceled, limit their reach. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. This is the, the refinement that I've heard offered by some to, to insist that they're not, not interested in trying to uh, stomp out other competing media outlets um, with the force of law. Um, but also this hearing today in Congress, and I don't know how closely you were tracking. I did. I
3: followed it.
0: But this is one of one of in a series of hearings about disinformation and extremism, uh, in media. Uh, and I think prior to this, apparently a letter had been sent by a pair of Congresspersons, if I'm not mistaken, asking them, asking various, uh, content distributors, if they were planning to drop, um, Newsmax, Fox news, um, and one American network. Um, and essentially it's one of those, if not, why not, uh, letters. And it's, it's an, interesting tactic. It's not the sort of thing where they're threatening any sort of action, but it is very obvious that it's a kind of like subtle browbeating oh, that's going on. Not not dis- not unlike what's been happening with the tech companies. And of course, they are not finished with summoning uh, tech CEOs to D.C. virtually, of course, these days um, to testify about their various crimes and awfulness so that they can be shouted at by Congress people in 90-second increments. Um, maybe we talk a little bit about the circumstance with Fox and kind of where that stands. You can kind of summarize, um, what, what's happening there. Um, and then we could talk a little bit specifically about what played out today. Um, and if there's anything in particular that folks should be uniquely aware of. Yeah.
3: I mean, I, so the, the, the thing that was, that was disturbing about this, um, what happened was uh, these two members from California, uh, Anna Ishu and Jerry McNerney, they sent a letter to all to a handful of cable carriers that included Verizon, uh, Dish, Comcast, um, and a few others, and they asked them. I
0: mean, these are all the big players. I imagine that's like most of the market yeah. for cable television, right?
3: It's it's you know ninety whatever percent of of the market, right? And. And so they they sent this uh, this letter, and there was there's a series of questions. Um, basically, it begins with with sort of vague questions about what are your ideas about journalistic integri- integrity, and then the last question uh, I'm reading here it says, "Are you planning to continue carrying Fox News, Newsmax, and OAN?" uh on Uverse Direct TV and AT&T TV both now and beyond any contract renewal date if so why and so the <laughs> the, re- the reason that's that's freaky there's a couple of things going on here number one i mean look it, it, you have a member of congress it's not necessarily the relevant committee of jurisdiction right so it's they're not direct regulators of of these companies so that makes it a little bit <laughs> less horrible um, but it's still uh, it's still kind of a, in the minds of these companies that there's a committee in Congress that has an interest in us now. Um, and probably if we make a decision in a certain direction, they may they'll, they'll look at us more favorably. So what happened with the, the content moderation issue in 2017 is that the, the Judiciary Committee summoned Facebook, Google, uh, Twitter and I forget who else to Congress, and they asked them a series of questions that were posed kind of the same way, like, "How come you don't have a plan yet for preventing what they called the foment of discord?" You know, and and they asked that question in the context of a series of plans that had they had also drawn up for increased regulation of those companies. So Mark Warner, uh, one of the senators in that committee from Virginia had drawn up this whole long white paper with proposals to make the tech platforms more susceptible to tort uh, claims and, you know, the beefing up powers of the FTC to regulate them. So now these companies, which many of them, including Facebook, had sort of affirmatively said in the past, we're not media companies. We don't do editing. Like that's not what we're tech companies. We're we're, We're something more like utilities than we are media companies. Um, suddenly, they, they, they do this complete 180, and now they're, they're partnering up with the Atlantic Council to decide what is and isn't misinformation. They're making these very, very aggressive decisions about content censorship. To me, this is like a First Amendment issue because you have government officials with kind of the implied threat of regulation or taxation – hanging over these Mm -hmm. big companies that have enormous power over media distribution, ad sales, that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's not inconceivable that, that Comcast or some of these other companies will, will start dropping networks. Like, well, they'll probably start with OAN because they're the worst of the, of the bunch, you know? Um, but they'll start dropping them (laughs) from the basic package. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a very dangerous moment for speech because, uh, you know, I I I can't stand Fox. I've never really liked the anything about the network. I, I wrote a book about you know how they pioneered a lot of divisive techniques. But if you get rid of them, then there's basically nobody left to make criticisms of the other ecosystem in the media. And I you know I, I to me it's a very dangerous moment. And um, you know the hearings today were were on. Um, A little disturbing on that front, I would have to say.
0: They they didn't have any of the tech executives today, but usually when they are there, you will hear prominent tech executives say over and over again, look, we don't want to be responsible for this. Right. So in addition to getting browbeat, they're also begging for the government to get involved, to do more of this regulation. Please tell us Mm -hmm. what is acceptable for us to have on our platform. You be responsible for censoring the speech so we don't have to. That's right. Which is a really nasty sort of downward spiral uh, that you get to create when you start engaging in this process. Matt, are they
1: citing anybody, anything in particular? I mean, so for instance, are they citing the sort of stop the steal stuff, the election theft stuff and Mm -hmm. saying, well, this is what is motivating us and this is uh, what has precipitated this hearing here in this letter? Um, Or do you think that this probably would have happened anyway after four years of Donald Trump and a media that, you know, has become you know, Fox and MSNBC or MSNBC and CNN and Fox uh, these days?
3: No, they, they, they very overtly made the, the case that it's January 6th and the COVID thing. They, they had the daughter of a of a, of a, uh, a man who um, listened to Fox's uh, ideas about COVID and didn't wear a mask and went outside and, and got COVID and died. And so they had testimony from this person and the you know the very open idea of the, of the hearing uh, you know as as the majority conceived it um was to say look uh, media irresponsibility is is deadly and we can't let it continue uh we have to do something even though you know it's a radical idea we've never had a federal media regulator in the united states it's just it, it's it's not something that we've ever conceived of and yet poor Jonathan Turley on, you know, the, the law professor from Georgetown University, who is kind of somewhat timidly making the argument like, I, yeah, I know this isn't popular anymore. But like traditionally in America, we combat bad uh-huh. speech with better, better speech like that. That's our idea. Um, and but that, you know, it's not popular. Like, yeah, he's right. the The new the new fashion is let's come up with a let's come up with a plan for clamping down on on uh these actors and and there's so many issues here beginning with the fact that yeah even though there's misinformation on Fox like the other channels aren't that much better um so if you it's it's just it's a misconception that if you get rid of a couple of actors you're going to be getting rid of a misinformation problem i think you're only going to make it worse
2: can you speak a little bit to what you have observed? Because I want to do an old man check since I'm at least a, a one <laughs> year older than you are. Uh, <laughs>
0: no. uh,
2: my impression is that a whole lot of journalists uh, and a whole lot of journalism professors are out there making affirmative uh, arguments to kick Fox off basic cable, to kick politicians off Twitter, to like deplatform, to shrink the public square. Uh, because the that that's the great lesson from Trump is that we gave him too much access to the public square. Uh, am I being a grumpy old man, or have you noticed similar things? And what's your kind of thought about that?
3: No, it, that, that's exactly the case. And um, you know, I've talked to constitutional lawyers about this, and they've said that they've noticed the same thing ever since Trump. There's now this new conception that, and particularly in the media that um Trump is what happens when we let people have too much speech, right? Like if we don't if we don't intercede and tell people what to think, this is what happens. Whereas I think it's actually the opposite. You know, if you talk to Trump's voters, a lot of them are sort of reacting to this uh kind of condescending attitude in the media and they just want to stick it to somebody for thinking that they know they know what's best for the population. But um but yeah the you know when I was coming up uh, in the news media, you would never have heard a working journalist be anything but horrified at the suggestion of some kind of like federal, uh, regulation for, for, for political content or, or like cheering the idea that an oligopoly of tech companies can have, you know, control over whose content gets, gets to be seen or, or, and whose won't be. Uh, but now I think majorities of young reporters think that way. Um, I don't know, Camille, if you if you've noticed the same thing. I mean it, it to to me it's sure. a it's a yeah. big sea change in the business. Uh, where, you know, it's it's only old guys like like us probably and and you know, Cyersh <laughs> and, and and Glenn and a few other people who are kind of clinging to this other tradition because most people don't think it works, you know, the the old okay. kind of Justice Brandeis conception of how we deal with speech. Um it, it, It's such a,
1: yeah. I mean, it's such an incredibly silly and short-sighted way of, of, of thinking about it. I just don't know how, how one determines these things. I mean, is it, so if you have a host on Fox who is skeptical of COVID, I imagine that'd be somebody like Sean Hannity. I don't watch Fox, but I, but there were people I know that I think Tucker Carlson was, you know sounding the alarm early about about covid was, actually. and some and and yeah. you know uh you know chris wallace i'm sure is pretty sort of you know mainstream on on most of these issues too so is it if one person is is you know saying it loudly and then someone comes in front of congress and says well my father died because he watched this only one channel well, I mean, I don't know, I don't want to be mean about this, but at what point do we have to say that, you know, these people have some responsibility? Remember, you know, how how long ago was this? Maybe in March or something, in, in April, May, that the entire media was very excitedly blaming Donald Trump for somebody who drank uh, you know, a fish tank cleaner and, and, and died. And it's it was something that had a an ingredient that was tangentially related to hydrochloroquil or whatever it was called. And, 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 and it was like, I cannot, there's another one of Trump's victims. And it's like this incredible thing that allows the media to do what they love to do. And I say they, I mean, I'm, part of it too, I suppose I, I love to do it too, but to overstate our importance mm-hmm. that that we have this power. We say one thing on television and there are hundreds of thousands of elderly people, you know, pushing up on their walkers and trying to find fish tank cleaner and saying, I don't need a mask. I can, you know, go to a beer hall or something. I mean, it is, just the very premise of it is so bizarre to me that of course, I mean, it's like the, it's like the unfairness doctrine where he's used to say like, you know, we need to have both sides on this channel. It's like, well, we need to have no sides for this channel. So we get rid of them <laughs> okay. entirely and then we'll be left. And I, and to Matt's point, which is totally right. Where do they think these people are going to go? You see the madness that's gripped these people when they use that expression, deprogram. We have to deprogram these people and they think that if this is, you know, Fox, is disappeared from the airwaves. It will start the process of deprogramming, rather than trying to understand that these people, if you read like Jonathan Haidt's book, where their politics come from, and it's not because they just happen to be channel surfing, landed on this thing and said, "Oh, that that's entirely true," and I'm going to make reckless health decisions based on that guy from Long Island who looks like you know the backup quarterback. You know, I mean, that's it's it's like, at what point do we say people have some responsibility and that they are going to have their own politics? You know, there was Bob Grant. Rush Limbaugh just died. Rush Limbaugh became famous because he was the only outlet for people who thought like him. And, you know, it's I, I was not a fan of the guy, but he was incredibly influential because of that. And not because he was the best performer. I think he was probably pretty good at that. But it was because the media landscape in that sense, especially on a national level, was pretty quiet. I mean, you had like Bob Grant in New York City. You had, um, you know, uh, Howie Carr in Boston. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I'm sure guy Matt guy remembers. Guy. Yeah yeah uh-huh. which was like, i would just flip on the dial and it'd be, always be some guy from like reveal like hey howie i tell you what about uh mumbles menino and there was just like that for fucking three hours
3: jerry from waltham
1: jerry from waltham <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. fucking tired of these liberals it, you know it's like i just love this idea that we shut the switch and they all just magically go away and become you know
2: they go to fish shows or something let's turn that into an actual question uh Uh, Tybee, which is to say that uh, how do you assess, um, in addition to the kind of censoriousness that I think um, we've sort of agreed on somewhat, but like how do you uh, assess the way that uh, news organizations have decided to pivot now even? Like Biden won, Trump's gone. More or less. He's going to be in CPAC, whatever. But like um, there's this sense of like now we're really going to use our adjectives strongly. Um, we're right. going to call him a liar. <laughs> we're going to call him a racist. Um, like there was a six months moment moment after the 2016 election where people were like, oh, shit, we really got that wrong. Let's try to figure this out. And then after about six months, like, yeah, no, nah, let's <laughs> just call it <laughs> <Let's> just, <yeah. laughs> no, It
3: definitely wasn't our fault. That, that wasn't
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, so what's, what's your kind of like a, a snap assessment of uh, where the leading lights, uh, in quotes or not, of journalism are kind of uh, self-consciously directing themselves right now and how that might play into uh, that sort of effect?
3: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, I mean, I think there's a I think there's a fundamental change in the way that people in the business think about what our jobs are. Um, again, when I you know my father was in the business when I when I first started coming up in journalism, I think it was pretty universally accepted that most reporters thought of their jobs as, you know, we we dig up the stuff we tell you the basics of what we find and then it you, it's up to you to do what you want with it right like it's you know our our responsibility ends at getting it right and pushing it out the door you know which is kind of similar i mean it's it's kind of an an absurd comparison but it's a little bit the way like the way cops used to think like we make the case we we develop the evidence hand it off to the, to the DA's office and then they either they either <laughs> win or they don't uh, and we don't care, you know, like we did, our, we did our job today. I think af- after Trump, um, there's this widespread sense that journalists, um, we have a responsibility to make sure that the public not only gets the information, but does the right thing with it. Like that, like that they, that they are pushed in the correct direction. Um, and so there's an additional responsibility that, that, that they think that they have to not only gather the information, but to present it in a way that it's going to be designed to produce the right political result in, in, mm-hmm. in the, in the followers. And, and there's, there's a couple of issues with that. I, you know, I was listening to Soledad O'Brien testify today. She was one of the first witnesses. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of wild actually. Uh, and she hasn't she, been on TV in a while, has she?
2: No. Okay. And
3: she she's- has, She's. With this new thing that's like a, a Hearst something or other, I can't yeah, I can't okay. remember what it yeah. is. But she kept talking about how like um, basically journalists are obsessed with presenting both sides. She kept using that term. And both
2: sidesism, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh-huh.
3: some sides <laughs> don't don't deserve to have a hearing, uh, and we we have to be responsible uh, as as journalists to make sure that only the correct side gets seen. And well, there's a couple of things about that that aren't quite right. Number one, there's usually more than two sides to stories, <laughs> right? Like, you know, if you're...
0: I sure hope right? so. Right? Yeah. I mean,
3: if you're doing any kind of story that's even remotely complicated, there's there's usually multiple angles and um, there's guilt all across the spectrum and there, it's it's never just one one theme or another that you have to concentrate on. Uh, so you're, you're already presenting people with a false version of reality. If you're telling them it's either this or that. Um, and if you're, if your idea of balance is, oh, well, let's just for show invite a Republican on to get balance. I think you've already screwed up the job. Like that's not what it is, you know? Um, and, and this gets back to the whole thing about being willing to be surprised by what you find. Um, You know, it's it's basically changing from viewing the job as a fact gathering uh, mission where you don't really particularly care how people deal with the information after they after they get it to to this thing that's much more like being a politician where you're trying to convince somebody to do something. Um, So that that's a big change. I mean, I think most young journalists think uh, in that other way now.
1: Is that, a, you think that's a consequence of, you know, university education? Because I mean, it's very hard to find these events in the past in journalism that you can compare to a similar event today. And the only one I can really think of is how people dealt with Salman Rushdie and the fatwa and how people dealt with Charlie Hebdo. It's nothing to do with Islam or who cares about that stuff. It's just, you know, I remember Christopher Hitchens, Hitchens wrote a piece about this, and he named the people. And by the way, a lot of them are conservatives, uh, like neoconservatives like Daniel Pipes and people like this were, were the ones saying, you know, Rushdie, because of his left-wing politics, had gone too far and because he was criticizing religion. And they hadn't gotten to their head uh-huh. yet that they hated Islam. <laughs> it was just he's criticizing religion, and he's a leftist who wrote a book called Jaguar Smile about how great the Sandinistas. is. Work, but he—you could—you could, you could name, that. Yeah. yeah, not his best work. You, you can name, you know, four or five people, and Hitchens wrote about it. And I think it was like the LRB or something. And it was like John Lacare was like number one on the list. And it was like, you know, we have to be sensitive to the way these – it was the beginnings of this. But everybody else was against it. You know, Penn and the U.S. and all these writers groups, et cetera. And then you come to 2015, the Charlie Hebdo massacre comes in. They try to, you know, honor these surviving people. And Penn turns on them. and Penn doesn't. Pen pen, pen pen doesn't,
2: but just 200 of it. 200 of its members.
1: members yeah. pen, pen does not. That is actually an important distinction. And I talked to Rushdie at the time, and he was totally flabbergasted about it. He couldn't figure out really what had happened in the intervening 15 years. So the question to you, Matt, is that it is, you're right, it is so different. I just can't quite put my finger on what what it was that that changed everything or who the culprit was or what the institution was that changed anything?
3: i i think there's been there's been a couple of changes in the business um you know some of them are cultural like uh my dad and I used to talk about this a lot because uh when he first got in in the late sixties you know he was a he started when he was seventeen years old um and when you know, once upon a time, journalism was like, it was more like a trade than a profession. The people who went into newspaper reporting, they were likely to be the sons and daughters of electricians and plumbers. Um, it was not a high class profession where, you know, the ed- the educated elite were going to go into being reporters for the local newspaper. Um, there's a great joke that was attributed to Walter Winchell where he's you know, he's saying, somebody asks him, are you still in radio? Are you still in journalism? And he's like, yeah, but don't tell my mother. She still thinks I'm a piano player in a whorehouse. <laughs> uh, and but then, you know, all the president's men happens and it becomes like a sexy thing for young rich kids, you know, like me, frankly, right? Upper class uh, <laughs> white, white kids who go to go to prep schools. Um, and and then what I, th- I think there was another change when you know, all the sort of working class people left the business long before Donald Trump came along. But then when Trump came along, it, I think that was a huge thing for a lot of people in the business. It was like, you know, this was our fault. Uh, we sh- we should have stopped this. Um, there was a total lack of uh, belief in the public's ability to make rational decisions. Uh, and so, you know, like like people who are used to having a lot of influence, do they took it upon themselves to to um, to to feel like it was their fault that this had happened, rather than saying, "Look, we gave everybody the information about this, and they just made this decision," you know? Hmm. Um, and I, I, yeah, so it's a big change. I'm not sure exactly what it is. I think it has a lot to do with class, um, hmm. but it's it's uh, it's certainly notable. That's for sure.
1: And one final point on this is that, you know, there's not a ton of evidence that prior to the internet, the media was pushing people to make the quote unquote right decisions. I mean, you know, Richard Nixon won in 1968 and 1972, he wins 49 states. You can't look at the nightly news in any, from 1968 to 1972, actually, you know, Watergate's just brewing at this point. And say that these were people that were saying, you know, this is why we have to stay in Vietnam, or this is why the bombing of Cambodia is the right thing to do, or that Richard Nixon's done a great job on all of these policies. It was an incredibly hostile media, which is why Nixon had his own class anxieties about the media, which you can hear in all of those tapes. I mean, people tend to be independent of what the media maybe wants them to think, and... You know, the Nixon landslide in 72, Reagan in 82, is that, you know, Reagan was not treated seriously by the media in 19, you know, in 76.
2: Or in, in, in AD. He was treated seriously when he died. <laughs> yes, that's right. And for like a minute. Yeah, yeah, including by me. I mean, I, you know, really? I as someone who, well, I mean, I went to UC Santa Barbara, mm-hmm. not long, uh, but, uh, you did he, not graduate. His right Western, be clear uh, the Western that. White House was in Santa Barbara while I went there. So we all like as a knee jerk thing hated Reagan, of course. Yeah. Like it's embarrassing. Yeah. And you just assumed that he was, um, as stupid as possible and like in, you know, Seeing the like, I have a, a book on my shelf, just his letters and stuff. It's
1: oh, like, it's the key, yeah. He yeah. can
2: write like yeah, like sentences. He wrote all those radio scripts.
1: I mean, again, it's like we're it's an incredibly low bar. We shouldn't be impressed that no, he can no, write a sure. radio script. But, well, yeah. I mean,
2: have you seen the recent presidents?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. yeah I mean,
3: God. after George Bush, the second yeah. one, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It turns out he's a great painter, but uh, not a great writer. <laughs>
2: There's, I don't know, I don't know if is he really though. Yeah, yeah, no, I I really like his stuff, his painting. Yeah, yeah, I think it's great. great. Yeah, um, uh, and Mm -hmm. and his ex presidency has been terrific. Because he hasn't said a fucking word. Yeah, and that's, that's yeah. exactly how you do it, regardless yeah. of what one thinks of him. It's like, if you don't want to right.
1: hit on Michelle Obama for 10 years, fine. But... Or
2: uh, LBJ just like growing the hair out, smoking all the weed and then dying. Oh, Also man. good. Also I, good. Yeah, I know we have to get back to an
1: actual conversation, but I just no. watched LBJ's last interview on YouTube. Oh, no. Dude, it's incredible. He looks like he's in, you know, canned, you know, hot tuna or something. He's got like long <laughs> hair and he's like on the ranch and he's like hooking up with Doris Good Goodwin. It's just the, Everything yeah, was very guy, He
3: was popping a lot of furinol and, like, you know, <laughs> watching old films down at his stack films down in his basement. Something
2: like
1: that. It <laughs> looks like it. It's incredible. He's like leaning in and long hair.
2: I would recommend if, uh, for those of you who are listening to this and we're recording this on a Wednesday night, mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, this afternoon is when a story dropped on in, in the New York Times, which is a newspaper that we've criticized on an occasion or two. But it's an amazing story, one of the better stories I've read in a long time in that paper, uh, by Ben Powell, correct? Michael, Michael, Powell, Michael Powell. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, a lot of a lot of Michaels and Bens and Powells mm. in the in the world, but uh, about uh, Smith College <laughs> and uh, a lot of the kind of racial and class disputes there. It's terrific mm. and has a lot of resonance with what we were talking about before, especially on class issues and the way that they are they are played out in the middle of like a highly charged kind of um, uh, racial or woke or whatever you want to call it uh, politics. Crazy. Um, And so just worth reading.
1: I'll tee this up for Matt because Camille asked me earlier, he said, does anybody have Taibbi's email? And I remembered that um, we, (laughs) you probably won't remember this. We did a radio thing at Sirius for one of the debates. Do you remember that you were there? Oh shit, you were there too? Yeah, yeah, we got really drunk. And, no, no, we didn't get really uh, drunk. Matt and Taiby got really that drunk. Dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy, over there? The um, guy with the kids, uh, <laughs> who's now like suburban dad, was in, it was like John Belushi. It they was like the hid, last night at Chateau <laughs> Marmont. They was, hid
2: the tapes, dude. <laughs> oh, is that with Pete
3: Dominic? Yes, yeah. yes, oh,
2: yes. Oh,
1: yeah. I'm not surprised you don't remember that I was there. Um, so yeah, I do
3: not remember anything. I don't remember getting home.
1: That was a, uh, that was, I remember we, we walked, we walked it reminded me of, um, uh, a journalist, um, to mention Christopher Hitchens again, that, uh, there, we had a baby shower at his house. He was next to neighbor, so regular listeners and others. Uh, and, there was some journalist that was there, was drinking and drinking and drinking. And he was like arguing with, uh, with Christopher. And then he left and Christopher's wife came over and she said, wow, blank can really drink. And he just looked and said, no, he can't. <laughs> and it was just like, yeah, that's like, no, that's the thing. That's yeah. not a nice yeah. way to talk. About yeah. Nicholas Gillespie. I yeah. told you. <laughs> I'm
2: just but What's yeah,
1: next? so I was looking for your email, and to Matt's point, and to your point about class, I come up with you know I used to work at Reason, and I have all my old emails. An email from 2007, and a guy named Marty Beckerman. Does that name ring a bell to you, Matt? Vaguely, yeah. Journalist, and he had pitched an interview with you, and he had, he sent the transcript. And so I have this document, and I, we, I think we ran a version of it, but it was very, very long. And I said, oh, you know, let's mine this for, you know, dumb things that he said shockingly prescient. I said to you when you came in tonight, I was like, man, I can't. And the one thing that I thought was really interesting, you said in 2007, 2007,
2: is he he, he predicting the financial crisis? uh, uh,
1: No, he he says, put all your money in, uh, in housing. I don't know what that meant,
2: but um, (laughs) Chinese bank.
1: But uh, the one thing that you, that you said that just caught my eye immediately was that there are going to be a lot more politicians like Bernie Sanders and this was before Bernie Sanders broke out and it was kind of the kind of Ron Paul era. And I think that that, uh, to the class point, there are people, obviously Donald Trump figured this out, uh, Bernie Sanders, AOC, and so, some others. I mean, AOC is a weird example of it because she's a lot of kind of young person identity politics mixed with class politics. But that turned out to be true. And I mean, I'm wondering if that, you know, because you kind of called that in 2007, it, do you s- suspect that we're going to have two parties competing to be the working class party, uh, whether they
3: are actually or, working or, class are, or, not. or neither
1: or, right? or neither. Yeah. 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 yeah.
3: I mean, I, so I I think probably the reason I was thinking that way is because I, had, um, I had been covering presidential campaigns and I was so struck by how completely out of touch uh, reporters were with sort of regular people. Like the way we cover campaigns, it, it basically reporters only hang out with each other and with the candidate. You know, you you fly from city to city and it's all these upper-class people um, who are kind of behind a rope line. They have to be once the secret service gets involved and they don't have any real contact with anybody who's not like an approved guest of the, of the candidates. So they're, they're out of touch. And um, I started to hear just sort of vaguely and, you know, at it, it, it gatherings for people like Ron Paul or uh even Dennis Kucinich. Uh this like note of anger that I hadn't heard in two thousand and four. Um mm-hmm. and that's it, it's only gotten worse every every year. This mm-hmm. this sort of sense that like nobody listens to us, you know. They, they the candidates come in, they give the same spiel over and over and over again, and they're very impressed with each other and the press is very impressed with them. And, there, but there's a whole universe of people uh, who just are like enraged by this whole spectacle, you know? And, um, so yeah, if some, if some, if some party is smart enough to figure that out, I mean, Trump was, Trump understood this instinctively. Um, and, and, and Bernie obviously understood it. Uh, but, uh, it's not set up. I mean, Josh Hawley is maybe trying to do that, but, um, but, but he's prob-
2: intellectualizing it, like mm-hmm. he's like, I must cross off those mm-hmm. X's on the wall.
3: Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not the real thing, exactly. Like, because you can't do it and have the donors. So it's, yeah. um, it's tough to know. But yeah, that that group of people is just getting bigger and bigger. I mean, don't you think? I mean, I'm, I'm curious to know what you think on that.
1: I mean, it's. I tend to not trust journalists. <laughs> Matt and I've said this to you a million times. <laughs> is that every time there is some controversy? and somebody is saying something insanely stupid on Twitter and they're a journalist, I always point out to you that I can tell exactly what they're going to look like. And they always look the same. They always look the same. Watch it, watch your both, tongue. both genders. The they all, yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh they're, God, yes. Yeah, it's like, oh my God, you have the 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 clog shoes with the back on them, you know. <laughs> and uh, and I, it, my favorite thing is in during the last couple campaigns being out there, and I did a lot of kind of you know working man stories in in 2016 and and a little bit this time too. And I always thought it was really funny watching those people work the crowd. Um, waiting to get into a, a Trump, um, a, a Trump rally. Cause one of the things that you need to be as a journalist is be able to be a chameleon. You need to be able, like talk the language a little bit, but not seem like a phony. And I would see these people who look like, like, you know, the only thing that they wake up for in the morning is to see if there's a new episode of Radio Lab out. And it's just like, <laughs> oh, that's you. And they're like talking to some guy. And they're, I mean, by the way, and most of these people will actually confirm this. The Trump people are always really nice to them, yeah. Because they boo the media inside, and they're always nice to them outside. And they're like trying to get their point. And they just—it's yeah. just like people trying to f- get directions in Grozny. They're like, "I don't speak the <laughs> language," and everyone's confused. And I'm like, "Oh, they're going to go back and file a story about this alien that they just met, mm-hmm. and it's going to inform all of their stories in the future about." Donald Trump, and I think it's like, you know, nobody, I've mentioned a few of these things, and I'll probably be at liberty to talk about this sometime in the future, of, you know, moments where I'm like, you know, we really can't, we have to go to this bar, and it's not because I'm a shitbag alcoholic, it's because, like, this is a bar that people are hanging out in there, and they're always nice, and you can hang out with them till like two in the morning, and get a better sense than awkwardly trying to say, you know, not indicate that you have a women's studies degree <laughs> and, and like that's pretty much Yeah, it's I just watch that all the time and it drives me crazy because those are the people conveying the information about those people. And it's it's just there's a mismatch.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit about the early days of the Biden um, White House uh, and their agenda, both with respect to domestic policy. Um, they've both got their sort of economic agenda that they're rolling out. Um, they're dealing with uh, a migrant crisis again because time is a flat circle and this is what we do now. Uh, also looks like they're they're reopening some some temporary camps, right? which may be housing My, the children. Migrant
3: centers, yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, that's I'm what so, we call those. Yeah, that's yeah, fun. Yeah. We certainly don't use c right, right. centers. <laughs> right, By which I mean caves. Right, 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 um, right, right. <laughs>
0: Because that would mean kids are in cages, which we don't do anymore because we're good now. Um, and so there's, there's those things. Um, there's also some foreign policy stuff that may be interesting and a bunch of wrangling over appointments that's going on. I don't know that we care about that minutiae just yet necessarily. Um, some of those people are bad, but whatever. But I did have a question because I'm remembering us talking, uh, Welch Moynihan, about Trump writing that lengthy letter. Uh, where he was like ripping McConnell a new one and essentially suggesting that he needs to he needs to be got rid of. But nothing comes of that. Mm -hmm. Nothing has happened. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of talk and continues to be a lot of talk about Trump's role in the party because it is not clear where the power center is in the Republican Party. But I keep looking around for someone to be the person who's carrying on the mantle of Trump. Defending the, justifying his sort of being a prominent figure in the party, helping to carry out his interests in in the within the Republican Party, and I do not see that happening. And the McConnell Trump skirmish, I'm wondering if the fact that he's come out of this so unscathed, and the fact that there does seem to be a real appetite amongst the Republican establishment broadly, the governors as well as the congressional um, uh, contingent to ignore him and to imagine a way that they can just pretend he never happened. Like, am I imagining no, that?
3: I think you're right. Uh, I, I, the, the Republican establishment never wanted Trump. I mean, mm-hmm. he he was a completely unwelcome party crasher. Uh, he made idiots of all of them. Uh, you know, in, in the, 2016 race, which which I covered, um, you know what was so fascinating about that race was that it, it it wasn't even like remotely close, you know, like there 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 wasn't, you know, the, the Jeb Bush challenger who was the the favorite son of the Republican establishment and had 150 million dollars behind his campaign, um, you know, he got three he got three delegates. See, I, I I went to a, mm-hmm. a an event of his. Where they had to rope off half of a pharmacy so that it would look more full in, in New Hampshire <laughs> uh, Because the guy, could, the guy couldn't fill more than an aisle of a pharmacy in New Hampshire. I mean wow. um, the republican they don't they, they just don't have a mojo in terms of um, you know, you know arousing popular uh, sentiment unless it's Donald Trump. You know, and, and I, don't, I think, you know, Holly is trying maybe to try to, in some sort of fashion, to to pick up where he left off. But they're, that's not really what they're good at. They're not good at attracting people. They don't have any real connection to them. They've, they've always just been basically corporate shills who've been using patriotism and some other themes and religion to try to get these people to vote for them. But they don't have any natural connection. Connection to, to to their voters, and I, I think they're glad that Trump's gone. Frankly, um, I don't know how you feel about that.
2: But he ain't uh, gone. It's the thing, like uh, the Conservative Political Action Conference, known right. around this table as CPAC, which thankfully I think almost no one is going to this year, mm-hmm. except for all the people who are going.
1: Even Young Pharaoh is going this year, <laughs>
2: which is really uh, too bad. Uh, no, uh, Donald Trump will be the king. I mean, uh, Andy Biggs who was believe it or not a once interesting politician in arizona from arizona he's now the chair of the house freedom caucus which should only be spoken of with air quotes (laughs) Uh, uh, he was on i was on uh uh, kennedy with with him last night and he was like in the in-between block and uh And she really had to resort to like the Joe Biden, come on, man, (laughs)
3: yeah,
2: because he was going so much about like, uh, you know, and Donald Trump, he he was just like full on Dennis Hopper apocalypse now. And and he's going to bring he's he's the energy man that it's it's everything. It's where we're going. (laughs) It's he's a poet. He's he's a warrior. (laughs) Yeah. Uh no that's it. Uh, Jim Jordan um uh he God. took a time off wrestling today to yeah. to uh to tweet out that Donald Trump is the Republican party. Like they don't have any other play and you have this insight among the kind of uh calculating um Josh Holly types of hey uh and it's not a wrong insight. Uh the question is what you do with it, but like hey Trump brought in new voters that didn't exist which is true um, there's a analysis by what's his face Patrick Ruffini a, a Republican leaning um, a political analyst talking about the difference between 2012 and 2020 go check it out but like the biggest differences are like Latinos, Blacks, sorry for using that phrase in that way. Um, and uh, it's the way
0: you say yeah, it. It's yeah, the enunciation. Yeah. the <laughs> No, it's like I mean the yeah, the,
2: yeah, blacks,
0: blacks, blacks, well the blacks. The uh, blacks,
2: like shitty self hating Jamaicans. They all like came in to uh, the party, Just like, uh,
3: disapproval. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um. So, like, but you could see people saying that. Okay, I'm going to try to pretend that Trump didn't exist, but that the political realities that he sort of conjured up are exciting and real and new. And you can't, there is no other all, uh, like uh, alternative to him as the person to be the conduit for that. Um, and I think that our previous conversation with Martin Guri uh, sheds light on that, which is to say um, that it's precisely the way that he outrages the political class that makes, that signals to people that he's worth signals to people in a populist way that he's worth following or trusting or believing and who else is doing that? Who else can do that and connect with them um, on a level that, you know, Josh Hawley is still Josh Hawley. No one knows who he is, no matter how many fists that he puts up in front of, the you know unicorn patriots on January sixth, no one knows who he is. Right? Well, it's
1: I mean it's also people, particularly in the media, misunderstood. I think I was one of them that said, "Oh, how is this billionaire?" You know, the champion of the working class. Nobody cared. Number one because enough people that I spoke to, you saw him as a self-made man. But all he had to do is hit those notes as long as he's saying the right thing. I mean, you can you can be a, a child of privilege. And keep on hammering on the media class in particular. I mean, that's that's public enemy number one. Yeah, and people I mean, love that, it. And, and you know, and, and, I don't know. Especially
3: what, because we were in the room.
1: Yeah. So, yes. Yes. Yeah. And that was the wrestling match aspect of it. That's why exactly. he's in the WWE Hall of Fame. Is that literally people turning to the press pit and booing? And there's something kind of funny about it. You know, I mean, it was like it's dangerous and scary. I'm like, well, we Did got you. Ever boo four years of it.
2: with them? As they're booing you,
1: I would I would go up to uh, people that I didn't like and just b- b- boo in their face. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you went
3: through this too because yeah, I remember the first time that happened. I thought, this is, "Wow, this is smart. This is gonna work." <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much I like it personally, but but uh, but this is gonna work.
1: No, it's a, exactly, it's like, I don't wasn't a big fan of it personally, I'm like, this is not a, a great politics to live in, but yeah, I know it absolutely works, but everybody else who's done Trump impressions has done bad Trump impressions, it's like everybody has a Marlon Brando, and none of them are very good, mm-hmm. it's like, the Trump impression is kind of like, I mean, Jim Jordan doing a Trump impression, nope. is like, he just looks like an asshole, Trump looks like a funny asshole. I mean, like yeah. when when he walked behind Hillary Clinton and said, you'd be in jail, I'm like, that man just won the presidency. <laughs> I didn't predict it, but I went back and said, that man just won the presidency at that moment. And people went, when I saw the, I, I was in South Car- South Carolina at this, in the middle of God knows where, in watching a uh, debate. And God, it was the, ho- the most hostile environment I've ever been in. Because we called ahead, but there was some mix up and they were like, who the fuck are you? And there are people, somebody pushed my camera and somebody came up with me like fucking liberal media are going to do this. Did and you I'm like, like
2: play the Gavin McInnes card?
3: Uh, I know
1: Gavin. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just, <laughs> I just, um, I said, I have a black friend. His name's Camille. Is that good or bad? I don't know where I am in this bit. Um, but he, so, <laughs> so it, like watching that debate when he landed even the, even a glancing blow about policy, cause there were some moments particularly in COVID where he, he sounded fairly coherent. Um, it was that second debate. But no one reacted. When the jokes landed, it was like being at the Apollo. It was like people like rolling in the aisles. It was mm. unbelievable. They were there to watch a, watch a cage match, even after four years. And and that's,
2: you know, no one can recreate that. So who does
1: the politics? But here's my question
2: for you, mass holes, especially, because you seem to like this shit. Um, uh, which is like, Should we have something to say about, um, should we save some actual semi-derision for people who uh, consume politics that way? Yeah, 100%. Yes, 100%. I mean, my thing is, I, I I don't want to speak for Matt, but it's, it's,
1: it's, you know, understanding them is important. Um, not, I mean, mocking them publicly gets, is, is just a pointless exercise. Stupid. Right, that's not what I'm talking about. But yeah, about. yeah it's yeah. like having some, I don't, I like, don't want
2: that to be the demand no, structure in politics. No. I think that's the wrong way to approach how our tax monies are spent by people who have guns to be a total libertarian about it, which I usually am not, but like, you know, that's the governance has nothing to do with that shit. Oh, oh, you're talking about the government or you're talking about the people who react that way. Well, no, but like, but like the people who select the people who become the governors, the fact that there, that that is a live wire, which is true and is worthy of respect in, and to be interested in, that's all true. But for me also, it's like, I don't have actual personal interpersonal respect for people who choose their politics on that basis. No, I, look, I will put a button on it this or, way and, yeah. and maybe that was and, too strong, but yeah, yeah
1: and, and I want to hear Matt on this, but I will say that to, to tie it back to everything else we've been talking about, is that it's not a, an American thing. And once you realize it's not an American thing, is you realize you really can't change it. that the kind of economic forces that exist in, a, in, in the world are going to create Front National and France. It's going to create Donald Trump here. It's going to play, create the Sweden Democrats in Sweden. You know, Pauline, uh, what's her name, in, in Australia? I mean, that's from the nineties. Every, Briscoe, yes. every, <laughs> every country has this, and it's a mistake for people in the media to say like, "Okay, we see them, and we have contempt for them, and now we have to fix them." Right. That is a, a, a stupid way of doing journalism, and just a stupid way of 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 being a sort of a political analyst prognosticator, whatever, these people exist and they're never going to vote for, they're going to vote for Bernie Sanders. I've seen a lot of people and that was not a myth. There were a lot of people that were really excited about Bernie Sanders, but they're never going to vote for Mitt Romney, Jeb Bush, Hillary Clinton.
2: And to be clear, it's, my contempt is not for people. It's, uh, it's for approaches. No, mine is for everybody. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But I again, know. I'm from California, so it's different.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I get it. I like, You know, again, having covered all those campaigns, listening to those uh, politicians say the same shit over and over and over again, uh, I totally sympathize with the voter who says, I never get anything out of this. It doesn't matter who I vote for particularly. Um, You know, nothing actually comes back my way that's positive. So the only thing I'm going to get out of this experience is the schadenfreude of, mm-hmm. of watching, you know, Washington people or people on MSNBC or whatever, look mortified mm-hmm. when, my, yeah. when my choice gets elected. And Trump delivered, he delivered that in spades, you know, I mean, like that, that was his promise is they're going to hate it, you know. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, the factories never yeah. came
1: back, and you know, Rex Nord, who I went to, like, oh, I'm gonna keep your factory. That never happened. He has no ability to do that. But it ended up being like, well, at least he was the first one to talk about it. <laughs> Since like Pat Buchanan yeah. no, uh, or, or Bernie Sanders. That's you know?
2: what winning yeah. actually meant in practice. The winning was to see, you know, uh Brian Williams twisting in the wind. It was mm-hmm. it was it was thrilling. Mm-hmm. I get it.
1: My, much like his helicopter ride in <laughs> Iraq, it was very thrilling. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. So, so maybe we look at some some policy stuff, and I, I mean, uh, one one other thing that I, I want to say, just because I've been thinking about it, Ashley uh, Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was shot yeah. at the Capitol, um, the like thought crossed my mind today. Like, what what on earth is going on with the police shooting investigation? Because I imagine there has to be one. And it appears, and this happened at the beginning of the month, and I didn't even catch it, but it appears that this has been adjudicated and the he, the officer who shot her was apparently a Capitol Police officer. The department that investigated her at the direction of the Justice Department, it sounds like, um, was the Metropolitan Police Department. So there's at least some sort of division there. It's, you know, cops investigating cops all the same. Um, but it appears that the officer has been cleared of wrongdoing. And you know, there was a time when people said they cared a lot about like police shooting investigations and et cetera, et cetera. And when a woman is shot very close range by a police officer and the woman is unarmed and she's wearing a flag as a cape when she's shot and killed, this has the hallmarks of the sort of thing where someone says, huh, is this like the kind of use of force that's fine? Is this okay? Okay did she look like she was armed? Did she do something threatening to you or no? And I'm not saying that anything is wrong, but for this to be adjudicated essentially so quietly, and I think we're waiting for the justice department to give us some sort of formal statement on this um, case just seems a bit strange to me. And Strange in the sense that it's out of phase with a lot of the other things that we've seen. I mean, certainly, like, I can remember fairly recent police shooting protests that were inspired after a knife wielding maniac yeah, like, one runs at, at a police officer. Yeah. And I mean, maniac in sort of a technical, right? technical medical sense, Manic. yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, like runs directly at the police officer and is shot within feet of the police officer while making like a stabbing motion with his arm. And people are in the streets rioting and it does not pay to be the wrong sort of person and to get yourself shot and killed by the police um, because no one will care, apparently, and no one will be interested in whether or not. This thing is being investigated. So, I mean, you get all of the hysteria um, surrounding what happened at the Capitol, um, and all of the sort of threat inflation imaginable, dodgy reporting, and a complete lack of interest in <laughs> the police shooting investigation. So, well, you know, yeah, accountability yeah. when it when it's the wrong so, when it's the wrong sort of person, not nearly as important.
3: Uh, yeah, and again, this this is the kind of thing where the where the Trump voter is going to pay attention to the, the coverage in a way that the Democratic voter is not going to. And they're going to say, okay, well, we listened to this intense um, anger about the police all throughout the summer of 2020. The mere suggestion of putting troops on the street was mm-hmm. was so offensive that it required the firing of you know a, a senior editor at the New York Times. And all of a sudden... Yeah. Attitudes are completely reversed about that, and um,
0: you know, indefinite troop deployment in DC. And, yeah, yeah, and
3: and, and uh, it's like psychologically, like you 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 understand why it is that way with with those audiences, but um, but it's it's certainly contradictory, right? And it un- and I think it undermines the case that uh, that they cared so very much last year, and suddenly they don't care a whole lot this year. It um, it looks weird. The optics of it are certainly, are certainly not good. And and uh, I know I wrote two books about, about police brutality and like police malfeasance. And it's, it's a very odd thing to try to figure out when the public is going to care about a case and when they won't. Like it's, it's not as predictable as you'd think, because there, there have been some horrific cases, uh, you know, that at the time you would have thought that would have cause entire communities to explode and they just don't. And then suddenly there's another case that's, that's just slightly different and it, and it just sets everybody off. Um, yeah, I think that's just part of the nature of this kind of story.
2: Matt, there's a, yeah. there's a, uh, book that you wrote about seven years ago and I'm blanking on the title and I'm sorry for that, but I did read every word of it. And that was a the contrasting the reaction, the divide. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Contrasting the reaction, the law enforcement reaction to the great financial crisis with the workaday stuff that happens on the lowest level, the lowest uh, criminal level and socioeconomic level in the criminal justice system. I, I really recommend that book to people um, uh, specifically for that part, of the other part is good too. Um, now it seems that one of the things, one of the only things really in the wake of – not just the George Floyd protests but kind of like the broad post Ferguson Missouri 2014 protests is that you have people um who are being elected and this, some of this is recent um uh going against cash bail for example which i think just finally like uh, kicked in on in some big cities in this country um this is happening at the exact same time um as a bunch of other controversial stuff is happening Uh, including uh, which uh, violent crime is way up uh, over the last year uh, in a really alarming and troubling degree. And in some places in Los Angeles and San Francisco, specifically uh, that I'm aware of um, probably some other people, um, those who were, who came into office um, advocating the kind of reforms that you were talking about or suggesting maybe um, in that book um, are now like that's being blamed for the spike. So I'm just wondering for your kind of reflections about that in this time. I worry as someone who's advocated and and all of us, I think, in this conversation have advocated for criminal justice reforms for a really long time, um, that that it's pretty easy to imagine a backlash right now.
3: Yeah. I mean, I I think one of the things that I was trying to focus on in that book was uh, this kind of modern conception of community policing, which is a it's a statistics-based strategy that basically goes out, and t- it, they tell. If you ever watch The Wire, you guys sure. ever watch that show? Of course. Yeah. So, Duh. so you know the whole Comstat thing. Um, that that's a real thing that happens, right? So, so what what happens with Comstat is the kind of middle management, uh, you know, the heads of the precincts get told that they need to bring up their numbers for certain kinds of engagements. So we, we need you to make more E arrests. We need you to bring pick up more prostitutes on this kind of arrest. We need you to make more stops uh, for, you know, public urination or driving bicycles the wrong way down the sidewalk. So it's, it's like a reverse psychology kind of thing where they, they tell the officers we want you to bring in people for this kind of offense. And if the idea behind this uh, originally was that if you if you get police swarming all over the population and constantly having contacts, two things will happen. One is you'll get all this intelligence about who they're hanging out with, right? So every time you stop a group of people for some silly little offense, you get to write down in a pad that you know this person's hanging out with these people, and you know you get to run warrant checks on them. Uh, and then the other thing is people won't carry guns because they're going to they're gonna know that uh, they can be picked up for something stupid. If you're going to jump, jump a turnstile, like you're just not going to do that with a pistol now, right, in New, in New York City. The problem with this strategy is that if you have a million contacts between the police and the population, and a lot of them are stupid and a lot of them are uh, rough, right? You know, I talked to – I interviewed young kids who'd be knocked off bicycles by the police or they have their book bags, you know, open, you know, turned over in the streets. Like a certain percentage of those contacts are just going to go wrong. People are going to get pissed. They're going to talk back to a, to a police officer and then things are going to get heated. Somebody's going to get shot and they're going to get killed. And that's how a lot of these incidents happen. And so a lot of the argument I was making was if you change the strategy and do exactly what Jimmy McNulty wanted to do in The Wire, which is Redeploy the resources towards actual criminals. Um, you'd probably do better. But what's I think what happened in the in the way in the wake of the George George Floyd thing is the cops, you know, kind of basically said we're just going to stand down because nothing that we do is going to be taken correctly. Uh, so not they're not doing A or B, you know, and and that's that's resulting in more crime. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what the solution is. Uh, you know, they they've got some good ideas about how to how to cut down on some of the violent incidents, and um, you know how to avoid putting people in jail and giving them permanent records for stuff that's really not that not that um, significant. But uh, but yeah, the you know the the, the the spiking crime rates is a problem, and that's not going to go away until people change their attitudes towards. Um, you know, they have to have some kind of appetite for policing, I think. Right. Yeah.
0: So it seems like they're, well, the, the, at least the appetite for policing is, I think, coming back in the communities, if, if it ever left. Right. In the communities that have been hardest hit by these spikes in, in violent crime. And there there is, uh, I think, a very complicated, important story to be told about precisely how uh, police departments have been impacted by events of the past couple of months, both with respect to past couple of months, the past year or so, um, both with respect to reforms that have been scored in a couple of places, because they have happened at the local level, um, and people who are trying to do things differently. I I saw uh, Wes Lowry uh, treat something about uh, a police department, I believe in Ithaca, New York, that was replacing their police department with a new kind of civilian law enforcement agency that is not police or something. But again, I mean, it's Ithaca, New York. Ithaca, New York is certainly not Chicago or Brownsville or any of these other places. And quite frankly, a policy that'll work there just won't work in other places. And it's not obvious it won't have other consequences. And you've got plenty of police departments that are struggling to fill jobs. Um, Places that had cut their staff substantially end up um, making uh, pretty substantial investments in recruiting efforts to try and recruit people to come join their staff because they cannot do the the work that they've cut out, set out for themselves. So it's,
3: it's tough. It's complicated. Mean, It's, it's compl- Look, you know, I, obviously I, you know, I wrote books that were critical of police, but I, I hung out with a lot of cops and it's a tough job. I mean, there, there's no other way mm-hmm. to describe it. It's, it's a hard job. I mean, people don't, they don't think about the minute to minute, problems that, that 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 profession you know involves like every time you pat somebody down you might stick your hand in the pocket and there might be a dirty needle in there right or you know you might get bit by somebody or someone's going to puke in your car like like it's a gross unpleasant dangerous job where you could get you could get shot or beaten up all the time and so not a lot of people want to do it and they especially don't want to do it you know if if they're not going to be um you know, sort of looked up to for it. Right. Uh, so, yeah. And, and, you know, there, there are And I I wrote a book about Eric Garner and I talked to a lot of cops who were deeply critical of what happened with Garner because they were what they basically said is the cops in that situation just did not know how to do policing. Like they, they didn't know how to talk to people. So they went straight to force instead of, instead of trying to talk to somebody or talk a person off the corner. Um, and uh, you know, so I have appreciation for those the the cops who think about the job and how to do it correctly. Uh, but you know, is, is that kind of person going to survive in in this new environment? I don't. I don't know. It's tough. To, it's yeah. difficult. Difficult uh, question.
0: Well, we we've kept you for a while, man. So I want to let you let you go. Um, but I I I did see um, a recent guest from your podcast on CNN and there's this clip of him talking about this push for like a $15 minimum wage and it says something along the lines i guess the cbo had like looked at this new policy proposal and projected that x number of people would probably get thrown out of work if this policy got passed oh, is this and throw? it says something along the lines of yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. like i we don't we don't want those kinds of small businesses around if they can't afford to pay people $15 you know minimum wage like then they probably shouldn't exist. And again, this is in response to a question from the anchor that was effectively <laughs> like a lot of small businesses are struggling now. Right. Like it's hard for them to keep their doors open. You insist that they pay more and it's kind of like, well, yeah. Or go out of business. Uh,
3: yeah. I don't know. I'm That's wondering,
0: you are, for you are road road traditionally yeah. man of the left. <laughs> like, what are you expecting In terms of like policy outcomes from the Biden administration on that front, do you suspect that there is enough cohesion to get things done? Because it seems to me that there is a wing of the party that is going to be pushing for policies like that and that may not always articulate the best (laughs) arguments for why those policies ought to get implemented. And they actually, they're not in control. But they do seem to have a lot of rhetorical uh, firepower at this point. For whatever reason, they're able to kind of dictate narratives in a way that even the president and his team don't seem to be able to.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I have a, I have a little bit more sympathy, probably for the through the point of view of those politicians, that, because I think the impact of what's happened since the CARES Act last year has been a massive increase. Or they call it the K-shaped recovery. Right, which is which is mm. basically a fancy term for rich people get richer and everybody else gets fucked. Basically, like that's that's the K, you know, like the, the K is the, is the people who already have money and and everybody else, like small business people, are going down. And the reason for that is is that the the sort of Fed fuel bailout, it it's designed to make sure that anybody who who owns financial assets, those assets are going to increase in value. But if you're a wage laborer, um, you know, you're going to struggle more and more. And just as an example, mm-hmm. the kind of hidden subsidy that uh, of, of the bailout. So, you know, the JPMorgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, they had their best year in 2020 since 2009. And the reason for that is that they were underwriting, um, you know, tons and tons of new debt that would not have been possible without massive uh, spending from the Fed, so all these companies that were basically dead now they're they're doing all this new borrowing because the Fed's buying their debt, um, and suddenly Goldman Sachs and all these other companies they're making 125 billion dollars in underwriting fees. So that's like a free subsidy that we're just giving the people who already have money during this crisis. And then you look in the other direction, and you know people who work in restaurants or you know who are bagging groceries or whatever it is. They're lucky if they're getting a little bit of a handout here and there. So I, I, I'm sympathetic, even though I don't necessarily think that that's a long term solution to anything. Um, I'm sympathetic to the idea that uh, in the middle of a crisis, we got to give some more money to, to, to uh, you know, folks who who are are really struggling. Um, I don't know if that's the way to get there, but I, I, I definitely understand that mindset.
0: Yeah, it was, well, it was much more to talk about. Yeah, it was
3: important <laughs> for
1: us, about. Matt, to go out on uh, reminding our listeners that you are, in fact, a Bolshevik. Yes. And um, <laughs> thank you, because you're making sense. For ninety-eight percent, we wanted to get that two percent in there. Yeah, remind them of who you really are.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but wanting That's, wanting to help people in the midst of a pandemic is not is not crazy and recognize it's Maoism, Camille. The fact that there <laughs> there really are two two distinct realities in, in the midst of all of this crap. Certain people are making a shit ton of money, um, and other people are really struggling to get by. Although I keep hearing like these stories about like chicks playing in the stock market and morning hands oh playing yeah. in the stock market. Yeah. And it is hard for me to not imagine that there is a reckoning coming, which I'm not wishing for it. With one hand, And yeah. by the way, We're just, to, just to point Crazy. out that if you oh, thought GameStop
1: good. was over, uh, 240% <laughs> today, and that's in an aftermarket trading, I went up another 120%.
3: What? When it went up? Yeah, kidding? GameStop today. Oh, really? Again? Today? Went up 100%.
1: And How then, much and then up? 100, and it was at like 160 or something last time I looked, and and. In just aftermarket trading. And, then, you know, and, and by the way, uh, just to point out this it doesn't take a lot to, to realize this. Not a lot of retail traders are, uh, are, you know, involved in aftermarket trading, which is kind of complicated and a lot of. Um brokers don't even really allow it. they allow you to start trading at like seven thirty or something not at four a m when some of these other you know big right, yeah. big companies do yeah. so so yeah in the the point before and we talked talked about this the right when this happened, I think it was the day when this was really blowing up was that don't ever think that it's just a bunch of little guys making money. There are so many people that are big guys, big rich guys that made billions of dollars on you know. Uh, it wasn't just people shorting in that stock. There were people that that had long positions in it that made a lot of money. Oh, so, uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. A lot I mean, and, they,
3: and they jumped on and, and there were definitely they used Wall Street Bets as kind of a populist Co- cover for what they a were cover. doing. Absolutely.
1: But, but, absolutely. You know, I, I mean,
3: I, yeah. I, I still think it was a fun outcome in a lot of ways. Uh, the, that couple of funds got squashed there, but... Uh, yeah, yeah yeah th- i
0: mean uh, but also that kid that kid who borrowed like twenty fifty thousand dollars he's like a security guard right I mean, did you see no, that story right in the happened, wall street no, journal no. Did he, did he, he, make he borrowed like uh, no he didn't make any oh, money. yeah no, no. he uh, he lost that yeah oh, and yeah. by the way that like
1: there's some I, I mean i all of my sympathies are with the wall street bets people obviously but um you know there's one thing that was really bad about that was i've been a member of that community for a while, just as a lurker for like about a year. And, uh, but the funny thing is about it is like everyone (laughs) that is up top and all stuff being upvoted, just saying, hold the line. It's like, guys, at least take some profits. Take some profits. I mean, you're literally up like 800%. It's not, it's, it's, like, yeah. you, you, you no, fucked them you over, right? Stomping like there. that was it. Yeah. Hold, 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 huddle, huddle, huddle. Um, diamond and hands. it's just like, yeah, diamond hands. It's like, all right, you're going to have paper hands pretty soon. And there's like so many bad actors on there too. And I'm like, oh God. And what the, the actual batting average, which I don't think anyone really noticed was pretty low when you looked at the other uh, uh, stocks and securities that that people were pushing, like you know, AMC was not what was, that wasn't to the moon as they say in Wall Street bets, uh, BlackBerry, etc. People lost the people lost a good good deal of money on that. And but on Wall Street bets, as you know, the the real kind of old guard there, they enjoy losing money and they the love posting, is having fun. It's man. it's, it's ho- just like on this podcast. I'll tell you what, though, I would just say it is one of the funniest forums on the internet. It's just routinely hilarious. So you know. Bless him for that. So,
3: anyway, <laughs> excellent, excellent. Hmm. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. Yep. Thank you, thank much. you Thanks so much. Yeah, appreciate it, you I appreciate you stopping by. Appreciate
2: it. I'm sorry. He's these. nice, so fucking commie.
1: I just—it's good that we ended with that because you know I don't want anyone to get the impression. That he's a man you should listen to.
2: No, oh my
1: god, not about <laughs> not anything. Not if not anyone about can go anything. find the audio <laughs>
2: of him and that honestly me and Moynihan and Pete Dominic, I think that they scrubbed that on purpose. Well, I think it's my.
1: There my is a picture. I'm not a a frequent user of. I go in spurts uh, on Instagram, but there is a picture on there. Oh no, of me holding a bottle of Brännvin, the Icelandic. Uh, oh. Uh, liquor. Um, at, and it was that night. It was that night. It was a very,
2: I mean, I it was one of those nights he I was, felt
1: sober because he was so out of his mind. He
2: was like head first on it the was, carpet. It was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. And told a story that I can't even foreshadow here because it's so tremendous.
1: It was tremendous. Yeah.
2: But it's basically about being an absolute war criminal during in New Orleans. Yeah, during Hurricane Katrina. Yeah,
1: if you can find that, I you'll there's a prize <laughs> for you. We'll determine what oh the prize
2: is. But it's,
0: it's 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 something else. Yeah. Holy shit, was that great? Yeah. Um, no. Well, yes. Well, we got anything else that we need to get to? Um, I, there's the drama at uh, at Slate this Ooh. week, um, which we haven't oh. talked about. Um, this completely insane situation where. Uh, Mike Pesco, who's... I, I can't even... How long has he been at Slate? He's been a fixture there for a well, long I think time, since right? the beginning of their podcasting,
2: right?
1: No, yeah.
0: Right? Yeah. For a while. Yeah. Jeez. Um, and I don't know him terribly well, but I know him a little bit. Oh, it's funny. This, the Thomas uh, Chatterton Williams uh, and uh, Kristen Powers thing is on Fox News. <laughs> you, what? Because you were engaging with her, uh, weren't you, yesterday? Oh, when?
1: yeah. I was. Yeah. And that's an amazing one because... I pointed out to you guys, and I remembered it by the way, because I was in publishing. And I am not going to, I, despite the fact that I have no obligation to to continue holding these secrets, I will just say that book went for a lot of money. Um, her book on how the left, in her in her language, is stifling free speech, and she was a Fox News contributor at the time,
2: and she had traveled from the left to the right.
1: I mean, for she's, Fox News and Regnery. she's just making money. And essentially, what happens is everybody in in publishing at the time—I'm sure it's still the case—the the advances would get would get bid up so high if the person had a perch on Fox News because everybody who had a perch on Fox News had a bestseller. Everybody, everybody, like like that doofus on the morning show Steve, Doocy. Steve Doocy. Um Steve. And, and the other the other dumb one there too in the morning show who's even dumber kill me yeah oh, yeah and he was like nice I like, I'm I like sure he's, I'm sure they're all nice Um, they're just not that bright <laughs> and, and so like they, they had like a book about like Washington and then like Brett Baer had a book who is actually Brett, and they're all bestsellers and so she was on Fox at the time and then she you know knew what book to write and it was a New York
2: Times bestseller and it was like when you told me about the title, which is how the left is like killing free speech mm-hmm. or silencing, <laughs> suppressing free speech. Um, how- but,
1: but but as some background, Camille, it, she tweeted um, what
0: exactly? It was that. Well, she was she was tre- tweeting about the Pesca situation. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah. yeah. And so I actually I have to actually have to go back yeah. and find a tweet because it is like, it is like kind of extraordinarily bad. Actually, bad. tell um, the
2: Pesca situation because at this point
0: it's too crazy. Well, yeah, the Pesca situation is, is odd because it seems that about a week ago now, if I'm not mistaken, there was a conversation happening on the Slack channel at Slate. And for anyone <laughs> who doesn't know, Slack is effectively the water cooler. At it's where
1: office. everyone gets fired. <laughs> That's that's where
0: (laughs) that's where conversations are happening. That's where careers go to die. Generally, you'll you'll expect like different different genres, different areas of the news organization. Some cases, if you've got a tech team, your tech team probably has their own channel. Oftentimes, there are ethnically themed channels in a lot of different institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, there Mm are, Um, and. It's some someplace on here. Uh, Mike was involved in a conversation with his co-workers and the reporting on this seems to suggest that they were discussing recent drama at the New York Times and specifically whether there was ever a circumstance where it's appropriate for a journalist to be able to use the word oh. nigger or nigga uh. in context when they are describing uh, a circumstance, not whether or not they should be able to hurl the slur at. Them
1: <laughs> I think that's universally accepted. That you should not ever do that. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And in this in this particular circumstance, it seems that Mike took the wrong position, which is to say he agreed with John McWhorter. I think explicitly did so, um, and suggested, and I believe he may have even invoked Randall Kennedy, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. yes. Um, but but I could be wrong about this. But he said. Um, effectively that there are circumstances where it's it's useful to use the word and one of his co-workers um, responds by saying that she doesn't feel, or he, I don't remember but they didn't feel that it was appropriate to even have this debated mm-hmm. on the slate Shack, Slack channel. They didn't feel safe being in a place mm-hmm. where someone would raise questions about something like this and Apparently, having raised questions about this, expressed the wrong sort of view about this, not ever having used the word, Mm -mm. but simply expressing a view about this, Mm -hmm. he was put on indefinite suspension without pay, or he's on indefinite leave without pay. At this point, it doesn't seem he's been fired He's essentially been fired. He's going to be fired. But this is is usually the trajectory of things. You don't want to come back to that. And it is... I'd say it's unbelievable. I was getting ready to, but it's really not. That is, is precisely the way that you expect exactly to right get increasingly ridiculous. It is
1: exactly right. And I thought this, um, today when I heard somebody talking about it on some podcast or whatever. And people always saying this, like, I, I couldn't believe. I think I even said, I can't, this is so, I can't even believe it. And I'm like, actually, this, I totally believe this. I wouldn't have believed it 10 years ago, but now I'm like, yeah, no, that happens all the time. It's just that it's migrating from like crazy people at universities to uh, mainstream publications that were started by Microsoft. (laughs) Slate. Um, and that was actually a Bill Gates thing. Um, you know, and, and it's just shocking in a way. The one thing that is shocking to me, it is the uniformity of response, the total and utter groupthink of the people that are attacking their own coworker or people attacking him in media saying the same sleazy bullshit fake thing like why is it because apparently this had come up with Mike Pesca in a podcast that he had done um a couple of years ago and I think he gave a couple of options and they recorded one with the word mentioned and one without it um, and they went with the one without it. It's normal these things, these sorts of things happen, right? When you're talking about these things in, in newsrooms. And that provoked people to say the same thing that I've been hearing over and over and over. Guys, get a new fucking line, which is that, you know, what is it with these powerful white men white people that want, they just want to, use, just want this to use this word? And it's like, I, I'm sorry, what was? That's n- not true at all because he didn't use the word number one. And number two, you guys are the one having the debate. And by you guys, I mean the people on the opposite side, which is mostly white people. So keep in mind what I'm saying when I say you guys. It's like like annoying white people <laughs> on Twitter.
0: Is that? No, when you talk about black people, you say you people. Oh, Thank well, I you. didn't. I don't Thank know you. the nomenclature. Yeah. Okay, but yeah. this is the crazy is thing to sure me. Consistent. It is that if you Think are having a conversation music. about this stuff
1: literally all the time it's like it infects everything. And then you say, something. why do you guys always want to talk about that? I'm like, no, no, that's fake.
2: Cause you're talking about it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> on those rare occasions that one person says in a private workplace setting.
1: Yes. Maybe must be made public.
2: Maybe we should <laughs> not always use the nomenclature, the N word when talking about Matt says the N word, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that's worthy <laughs> of public condema- condemnation. It's worthy of, of, of like, of suspension and firing and whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, no, that's not Mike not- Pesca making that an issue. He, he, like, put the brakes on momentarily that issue in a workplace and mm-hmm. then suffered for it violently.
1: And, and, you know, there's a, a number of people, a lot of them seem to be former libertarians, uh, that, Uh, seem to be paid or exist on the internet to tell you that this stuff is is um either not a big deal or like why are you obsessing about this um a lot of those people aren't really journalists some of them are but i think that the thing that we can finally say that we've been talking about this for a while and we've been talking about it for a while because we're incredibly prescient we are Karnak-like in our prescience about cultural issues. We are very, very bright, and we've been very, very right. And the thing about this is if you look at the scope of this, just in the past like three months, you realize that this instinct, which is totally fine as an instinct if people want to express it and not wield it as some sort of weapon against people you disagree with, it has taken over the times, apparently Slate, Vox, The Intercept. I mean, we can keep it. The New Republic. We can keep going. It's not as if this is like, oh, you know, one of these crazy incidents of somebody's like, no, 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 no. Stop pretending that this isn't an institutional problem in a lot of places. And the thing is, is we, nobody wants to say the word. We want to be in a place in which we can have conversations about things, including that thing if it happens to come up. It's not something anyone is dying to bring up. Obviously not because people lose their jobs when they do, but uh, whatever.
2: One of the, the story that I I'm mentioned earlier uh, in the New York Times about what uh, happened at Smith College it included mm. like a range of events, but that began with a 2018 event in which a black woman paying the $78,000 or her family or whatever negotiation, uh, $78,000 tuition at this university. Was during I believe the summer, um, eating in a dining hall that was closed, and so it was then approached by the food services staff, and then the, the janitorial staff. Like, uh, you are you should should you be here? Um, but like in a friendly way,
0: and
1: they were explicitly told to but, keep people out. Yes, of that, yes. Of that, so of that event, they're right. For fully,
0: he did have he did have an officer with him, mm. which it was apparently policy at the university for them to not confront people and ask them to like leave some area without having uh an officer present and so, so as a
1: witness
2: kind of thing
0: in this i don't know why they do this but this is <laughs> nothing this is makes
1: the sense at in, 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 in this process
2: the, the student who is uh like you know 20 was a student 22 or so, something like that uh said that uh, she was a victim of racism and like called people out the janitor and the, the food service mm-hmm. worker as racist. She was also angry because he misgendered her. Correct. Apparently. Cause he couldn't really see her in. And I think right. one, cause was dark. One of the people that she accused of racism actually wasn't there, um, was actually mi- not misgendered, but misidentified as having been part of this in the first place. Those people are making, f- well, they
0: all look alike <laughs> so. making 40,000, <laughs> $45,000 <000 laughs>
2: a year. Yep. Um, in their jobs and this becomes this whole imbroglio. Is that the word?
1: I mean, we'll pretend that okay, that's okay. That's fine. No, not really,
2: um, but that's fine. But as part of that, <laughs> so this kicks off a whole bunch of, of campus controversy. And so um this brings into sharp relief the behavior of the college president who apparently in twenty sixteen, this is exhumed and then brought up as like a, an example of something strong to think about uh was i think the moderator or the chairman or something chairperson of a of a discussion um about um the use of language and and, and such like uh at columbia or mm-hmm. in new york city and at that discussion the n word was used and it was talk it was talking about free speech should we you know use certain terms of free speech and um And in that uh, process, the classic Huckleberry Finn Mm -hmm. argument was brought up, and one of the panelists brought it up. Wendy Wendy Kaminer from the ACLU. Which wasn't specified in the New York Times story, but but, Moynihan is bringing that up, um, uh, saying like, hey, look, this word and the the allergy of this word um, is uh, being used, as it is to this day, as a reason to not have people exposed to the Greatest American Novel, which is Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Um, and so she used the word in that context in 2016. Um, the president of the university, we find out in today's Time Story, um, apologized mm-hmm. for having let the person mm-hmm. use that word in an example of talking about how using that word is important for... Do you notice that in all of these
1: things, nobody's actually the one using the word? It's everyone's getting in trouble for other people Jeez. saying something and not even the context and everything. But Can the, we just cancel Wendy Kaminer? I well, mean, it's well time. this is the funny thing about this. You pointed this out because I hadn't read the story. I was kind of quickly reading it before you started is that uh, uh, Kirsten Powers, we originally started talking about. Who had tweeted mm-hmm. out that why do you why do you have to use this
0: word and she's all really woke now?
2: Wow, you white people got to. We-
1: can,
0: can I can I read this? Yeah, read, yeah, read it. Read the tweet. Yeah. Another, another day, another news story quoting white men saying they can say the n word, not what? bc context. That's nothing should be beyond debate. What is so hard about this? <laughs> the Kirsten Powers voice. What, what is so hard about listening to black people and respecting their view? Uh, there's one view.
2: Camille, can you? Camille, what's the view? Only one view. Camille, can you? Singular. Can you singular speak your response is it to that? Black, is it
1: that your view? Good. Tell us the black view as a black person. Who's not a black person? I, I, I
0: don't do yeah, that. Yeah, well. So I can't do You that. should exploit it sometimes. I, I am not <laughs> under the impression that there is a single view for black people. But apparently, well, there is.
1: I decided because I remembered her book about how the left was killing free speech and everything. Decided to get a copy of it and uh, just look through the, the the book and see if she had actually mentioned anything similar in the book. She had uh, had a story in the book about someone saying the N word. And she just is like, can you believe these liberals attacked this person and made her apologize? And it was the president of Smith college. It was the same, same it's the same. Ex- anecdote. It's the same example. <laughs> and she was on record in a book where she's the best bestseller. It's Cause amazing. she's just cashing cashing in the, uh, the royalty checks saying that, you know, can you believe these, these, these shrinking violets over at Smith, et cetera. And God, how, how it just, you know, five years. And all of a sudden, just a total opposite view. Amazing how that happens. But these people are all trying to keep up with uh, everybody else in journals and they're all afraid of them.
2: One of our listeners uh, uh, made the comment, and I think it's kind of true, that Moynihan doesn't do anything except read really shitty books and never forget them. Yeah, I just read books (laughs) and I never, because you know why?
1: And it's not, I would never ever make the claim like, ah, just like I have a mind like a steel trap. I just want to okay. wreak vengeance on everyone, even if I don't know what they've done. I no, just your hatred I, is. My hatred is is has an Irish passport. It is. There is something I appreciated
2: you wrong footing, Tybee, at the outset. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, for sure.
2: Yeah, you know, Again, I'm gonna get
1: be really honest about this at the outset. Right. And you know, you see, I'm correct himself later. You know, I am a part of the elite. Uh, I think I think Matt's been very open about this. That's the reason I knew about it. I knew that that uh, he went to the very very elite school. Uh, down... he
0: yeah. have d- been trying to keep his privilege his privileged upbringing a secret, and you put it right out. Yeah, there. I just had to because um, in the
1: streets. I would never forget those kids at that school and how much I hated them. Yeah, so I had to really take it out on Matt Taibbi. It turns out I finally oh met one that God. I like. Um, Matt Taibbi was that is that person? Just in case there's any any confusion it was him yeah
0: but uh yeah
1: all right should we should we go home all right
0: well we should we should punch out of here i guess we've We've done enough for for one day never. um no that's not true there's always more to do but it's fine i think we can wrap it up today
1: well i'll tell you i'll wrap it up in one thing we never do this because everybody else is annoying about it and i have to fast forward through the first fucking 10 minutes of their podcast when they're saying to join the patreon but yes we have some stuff there you should uh, come join we have a lot of great um messages from people we get a flood of them and uh we're going to be dealing with that uh soon. I think we'll record one uh on Sunday, right?
2: If not earlier. I'm if sure not earlier. We yeah. yeah, we can yeah. maybe do it. We'll see what
1: everybody's schedule is, but uh we all have jobs and things so. Yeah. Um yeah, so join the Patreon. It's it's absolutely worth it. says me. <laughs> I
0: have an exciting <laughs> guest lined up for you next week. Oh yeah, we have a really exciting one. So right? yeah.
1: That's going to be a come come back it's
0: a, as always. Be a fun one. Uh but yeah. All right. Let's do the thing. Let's do the thing. You're welcome. Yeah, you're Goodbye. welcome. Bye.
3: We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horde.